Hello all! We are at the top of the hour and um, tonight it's going to be me and uh, the amazing Steve Grumbine, um, uh, MMT guru and uh, real progressives champion. So uh, Jordan is at home uh, doing the baby papa thing. Uh, so we are going to be covering for him tonight and uh, we, have some, um, we have some very interesting topics if you want to throw that Chiron up for us, uh, Colin. Um, on what we're going to be talking about tonight, um, we're going to be we're going to be starting off talking about how the COVID emergency plan is um, is basically being shut down in in the spring. So it's it's sort of a amorphous a little bit, but sometime between March and May, all the programs are going to be cut. One of one of the things that's going to be cut is um, the Medicaid expansion, meaning that. 15 million Americans can be knocked off Medicaid. And we don't, we already don't have uh, proper health care in this country. Uh, Six million of those people would still qualify for Medicaid with the insane, you know, poverty limits that Medicaid's at right now. So we're talking about, you know, the student loan debts um, coming due again soon. So we're, we're looking at a bubble in the spring. Um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about how they uh, are, of course, using the excuse of how are we going to pay for it in the debt ceiling, which I am sure Steve will have a ton of uh, thoughts on because uh, that's his arena. So, Steve, how was your uh, how was your week? My week has been absolutely brutal. I mean, it's just been nonstop toothache, not feeling great, run down like a dog. But the news just keeps getting me back up because it's so gross and disgusting that sitting back and crying about sore teeth ain't going to get it done. So I'm here. I'm ready to rock and roll. Let's make it happen. Well, you and I both have the uh, have the fun times of a uh, long COVID. So uh, that's so many uh, so many people are going through that. And yeah, it's something we're still learning all how to cope with. Uh, who's who's going through uh, going through the process of uh, learning uh, new things all the time about it. Yep. Which takes us into healthcare, man. Like Indeed. we already don't, we already don't have healthcare. You know, I know Steve, you and you've talked about on the show, and I've talked about how medical bills are piling up. I have seventy thousand from you know where I had a mild stroke in the summer of last year. But that this story isn't unique to the two of us. There are millions of Americans that um, you know are already in the poverty level, or you know, um, regular working Americans that don't have adequate health care, that don't have help, and then there's millions of Americans that the only option that they have is Medicaid, and um, and and the COVID, the COVID Medicaid extensions have been a lifeline for many people, and of course, um, Steve and I are both massive proponents of universal single payer health care, Medicare for all um, health care is a human right. It is one thing. That national health service, <laughs> national health service. That's damn straight. Um, cut out the middleman, no privatization, cut out the insurance companies. It's all a waste of money. It's a waste of time. Um, and it people get sicker while they're dealing with red tape when there's also millions that just have no I mean, forget access. You got access if you're rich enough already. Um, but for many of us, there is absolutely no healthcare period. I mean, I know, for instance, I have pre-existing conditions. And even though Obama passed his, uh, you know, 
the pre-existing conditions bill under the ACA, they still charge us outrageous amounts for anyone who has pre-existing conditions who tries to get health insurance, even under the ACA. You can't pay $2,500 a month when that's your entire livelihood. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, let's go into, um, if you want to pull up the article for us really quick, Colin, um, did you have that link? The CNN article? Yep. So these benefits will disappear when Biden ends the COVID national and public health emergency in May. So what are what are some of the things that uh, we're talking about here? Uh, you could scroll on down a little bit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you vanished there, brother. Colin? There we go. He's got us. Yeah. So Medicare provisions. Here we go. Um, public health emergency has also meant additional funds for hospitals, which have been receiving 20% increase in Medicare payments rate for treating COVID-19 patients. Also, Medicare Advantage plans have been required to bill enrollees affected by the emergency and receiving care out of network. Let's see. Here we go. Oh, <laughs> I wish I was scrolling. I don't know how to um, go up just a little bit. Let's see. Out of network, less of an impact. Oh, so here we go. Most notably, states will be able to start processing Medicaid redeterminations and disenrolling residents who no longer qualify. Starting April 1st, they have 14 months to review the eligibility of their beneficiaries. So you could have people that are waiting months to get an answer as well, um, because there is no balance between when they're going to be kicking people off and when people are going to be reevaluated. A total of roughly 15 million people could be dropped from Medicaid when the continuous enrollment requirement ends, according to an analysis um, the Department of Health and Human Services released in August. About 8.2 million folks will no longer qualify, but 6.8 million people would be terminated even if they are still eligible, the department estimated. Now, I want to remind people that the poverty levels um, that the government has set for Medicaid are already insane. I can remember 30 years ago, if you were a single parent or if you were parents and you had kids and you were making, you know, and the median income, you were eligible for Medicaid. So most people I knew that had kids had medical cards. A lot of us that were growing up, that's the only way we're able to go to the dentist. That's the only way we were able to see doctors is because we had a medical card. Well, the poverty level has been essentially flat since the, what, late 80s? So a single individual can only make maxed out $14,000 a year to qualify for Medicaid but there's a second kicker for that. They can't be out of work. They also have to be logging at least 15 hours a week of work. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Yeah, exactly. And then the second part of that is that if you have a family, a family of one, a single parent, 18,000, well, 17,300 um, is the cap for Medicaid in most states across the country. Some states have expanded that to above slightly, but the median income right now is 45,000. And with rents 
at an average of 2,500 for housing, people not being able to buy homes so that they have a higher, a lower rate of housing. Um, with health insurance cost, if you weren't on Medicaid at, you know, an average of 1500 to 2500 a month, once you add all those things up, transportation, food, lodging, it's impossible for millions of Americans to have health care, to be able to go to a doctor. So we just go and we're seen and we treat the emergency room as our primary care physician. And now they're talking about knocking 15 million more people off of that who may a large percentage may even still have long COVID and are dealing with the impacts of having COVID in the first place. And and the one thing I was going to ask you, Steve, is, is the argument that they're making to cut these benefits, um, which are basic, like the bare minimum they could do anyway, you know, and isn't nearly enough. But the excuse that they're using right now is the debt ceiling is too high. And how are we going to pay for it? So you're you're the perfect person to weigh in on how the hell that is, is a complete farce. I think it's important before you get wrapped up in that part to go back and just think about why we're even talking about cutting these things to begin with. Like before we even, before we even talk about the national debt, this all goes back to COVID, right? With COVID, they had a wide open opportunity to do a bunch of different things. We all kind of got used to a life that wasn't quite as, uh, tooth and nail. There was money coming into the economy. People were able to stay home. There was some things. It was a little bit less by the seat of your pants, a little bit less. Now, all of a sudden, the little teeny bit of perks that came through being locked down for three years, basically, are coming to an end. And they're coming to an end because they're trying to get us all back into the workforce. And they're trying to create this kind of precarity amongst us, right? And because they are not able to control salaries the way they were because people were choosing not to work, um, they're like, oh, well, we can't have that. That's, this is part of the quote-unquote re uh, inflation reduction. We're going to go ahead and force people back to work. Now you're going to have a glut of people fighting for garbage jobs, jobs that nobody wants to begin with. But they're going to be a fight for that. And this is the way they're going to bring wages down because now you got a bunch of people fighting for trash jobs. And, and this is all part of a larger picture. Now enter in these programs, these little things that allow people to feel like, well, I don't need to get a job now. I still have this Medicaid expansion. I still have this COVID relief that I can kind of work within. I can still survive. I don't need to. Once they take that away, the little bit of uh, protection people did have will be completely gone and they will be back to fighting tooth and nail to try and get back onto the hamster wheel and get back involved in the shit storm that they're putting us through. So now enter in the national debt. This is all part of this austerity narrative. They do this all the time to discipline we the people. This is not something that they're doing accidentally. This is not something that they're trying to, you know, uh, oh, we're just trying to be prudent fiscally. We're trying not to go deeper in debt. The national debt is different than the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is all about monies already spent already passed by law through Congress, all the, all the spending, all the stuff that was passed, all the laws, all the everything it, they're trying to say, well, we're going to hijack payments on the things that we've already committed to spending on to get extract an ounce of flesh 
it's not from the Democrats. Don't let them believe, don't let, don't believe for a minute that the parties are trying to extract the concessions from one another. They're both foil for each other. They're out there to make it harder on us. We, the people, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, gay or straight, young or old, they're going to try and make it as challenging for us to live on our own without falling into that precarity narrative that they want us in. I mean, it's been on the books countless times where they've said workers have too much choice. Workers have too much flexibility. Workers aren't scared enough. I think there was a Federal Reserve uh, meeting that was they said the quiet part out loud where they basically said, hey, they're not scared enough. We got to we got to make it more scary, if you will, so that they will accept less. So they will do things that we want them to do. So I think this is part of a much, much larger narrative. And I think it's part of the narrative that they want COVID to quote unquote be over much like they want the Las Vegas mass shooting from a few years ago to be over. They just sort of vanished. Stop talking about it. Right. Well, this will mm -hmm. be one of those things where they want COVID to go away as well because it's no longer serving the narrative that they want it to serve. So the terrifying fact is that most the, the Lafour the Lafour curve or their Laffer curve that was just Laffer curve, yeah. not napkin and had no economic uh, economic thought behind it. It was just it was all propaganda, and they're Absolutely. still using that narrative forty years later from from Reaganomics because it was it was popular. It was like let's cut the debt down. That's the that's the responsible thing to do. Well, it's, it's it's a big, big deal because this is a model that it doesn't matter whether it's student debt, whether it is a Green New Deal, whether it is Medicare for all or any other subject. This exact playbook, if you memorize what's happening today and you keep it in the back of your brain and you don't let it go, you'll be able to interpret the news correctly whenever it shows up on your screen. Once you hear them in the initially start talking about how we can't afford it, we've got to make cuts, we got to tighten our belts, we got to eat our peas, Obama, all the other things that the Democrats have said and all the things that you've heard repeatedly for the last 50 years, they're going to do the exact same playbook. Nothing is going to change whatsoever. So the idea here is they're trying to gin up this fear. And sadly, there's people probably even in our audience right now that think somehow or another the United States government is in debt and that someday the debts are going to get called. Someday they're going to, you know, have to pay the piper and all this stuff just because they don't understand. They refuse to understand. And this is this is what they, the political class and the ownership class are hoping for. They're hoping we're dumb and stupid and uneducated, unable to fight back, unwilling to say anything wrong, because in our heads, the idea of being in debt makes sense. Hey, country can't spend what it doesn't have. My hard-earned tax dollar, all this other garbage that plays super great within Republican spaces and plays pretty darn great in Vote Blue, no matter whose spaces as well. They are my hard-earned tax dollar, you know. And, you know, it fundamentally comes down to that there are basically two types of people, people that give a shit about each other and people who couldn't be bothered. And I right. think that they're praying to God that they make it so that you're so scared, so nervous that the only thing you're going to worry about is your home. You're going to worry about mine, get mine taken care of. And by focusing you solely on yourself, you immediately crush solidarity. You immediately crush collective action. You immediately crush any kind of movement building power. Because everybody's all about themselves at this point. And this is that's what they're doing. The, and it's not an accident. That's the whole Ayn Rand, you know, rugged individualism, um, bootstraps, BS. A lot of people don't realize 
where the bootstraps term comes from these days because it's been so it's been taken in a completely different direction but it, it evolved from world war ii when there were soldiers in the trenches it was don't leave your fellow soldier to pick themselves up by the bootstraps meaning it's impossible to pick themselves up by their bootstraps so don't leave them behind go and give them a hand go and lift them up but it, it morphed because people started using that economically in, in the labor movements to say, we can't, don't let, don't let each other pick each other up by the bootstraps. Then it was taken and propagandized to say, you have to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. That's your individual responsibility. And so it's so interesting. And that's how propaganda works. If something rises up in the labor movement, they capitalize it and they crush it. The term redneck, it came from the coal miners wearing red bandanas and marching up by the thousands up the Battle of Blair Mountain. That's where the term came from. Um, and so they had to take to crush Appalachian uprisings and worker uprisings across the country as this solidarity of the red bandana started making its way nationwide to calling rednecks what? Ignorant, barefoot, seeding in racism. Um, and that's the way exactly, like you said, it's the rampant individualism. And then it's also the otherizing um, in this country that that keeps us, you know, I got mines uh, and the rest is, you know, people have to fend for themselves. But in actuality, we're giving 30, 40 percent of our paychecks to a government. We are doing that that um, we're working for companies that already pay us pennies on the dollar with billionaires at the top that are riding around in yachts and private jets. I mean, we're already there. We're, we are codependent already. If you're in this system, you are codependent on everything. So why not create a system leaning on each other instead of leaning on the millionaires and the billionaires and these politicians and these heroes that we prop up to make the change? Can you do me a favor? Bring up Lisa B's comment. Uh, she's got a Richard Wolf comment, and you know, some for the new for the left to rise up, we got to kill the old gods. I hate to say that. I, I, we have to kill the old gods because the old gods have led us wrong. Richard Wolf, the, I, Lisa, this is not a shot at you, by the way, but Richard Wolf did a great segment about all of this on Democracy Now. This AM explaining debt and U.S. government borrows from corporations and pays them interest. I, he is so, I love Richard Wolf for his co-op understanding, but Richard Wolf is not a monetary economist. He does not understand macroeconomics. I'm a lay person and God love Richard Wolf for what he knows, but that ain't it. So when it comes to anything that has to do with how money works, let me explain to you, Richard Wolf is not the guy you want to learn from. And, uh, you know, it, it's disappointing because he's had opportunities to talk with people like Stephanie Kelton. He's had opportunities to talk to people like Randall Ray, people like uh, Paul Sliger, who used to work with him. There's a bunch of people that have talked to him, explained to him, shown him. He'd have to rewrite about 50 books probably to get it right. And he's not going to change. And unfortunately, the United States government doesn't borrow anything from corporations. The United States government creates its own currency, full stop, period. End of story. There's no extra to that. It's just that's the way it is. And when the government spends money, it spends it into existence. And when it taxes it, it's only taxing it to pull it out of existence. The government doesn't borrow anything from corporations. It, it's just very frustrating the government itself is the top of the food chain. 
The problem is, is that it allows itself to be captured by corporate and banking interests. Is that an accident? I don't think so. I think that is the way it's gone. And I think that's why a lot of the things we talk about tend to end up feeling like Groundhog Day. Like we've been here before, haven't we? We've talked about this before. Why does it keep happening? And it keeps happening because we keep forgetting that the United States government creates the dollar out of thin air, period. By law, Article 1, Section 8 of your U.S. Constitution. Article 1, Section 10 tells you that the states cannot create currency either. Okay, so it's very important to understand that the government doesn't borrow shit from corporations. Okay, and the idea of interest versus pass through or versus taxes or whatever, it's simply not the case. Tax law is a stupid thing. We could do a million things. In my opinion, and this will sound crazy, I say you eliminate all corporate income taxes, put every bit of the corporate income taxes on the C-suite, the, the CEOs, the CFOs, the all of those, all their stock buybacks, every possible thing that includes their wealth. And watch how quickly corporations have to serve the people. Because right well, now, all they do is serve Golden. Yeah. Somewhat, yeah. because pre-Reagan, um, individuals at the top of the company, if they were making more than a percentage of their lowest paid worker, they were taxed 90%. This is this is pre-Reagan era. This was during the, you know, this was part of the New Deal, which the New Deal isn't perfect at all. But this is one of the caveats of the New Deal that was completely struck when, um, when uh, Reagan's tax code went into place. So then it created this, um, this bubble where the companies, they still don't pay any taxes, but anything that's absorbed is absorbed by the workers, um, the people who are keeping the engines running every day, the people that are delivering the packages, the people that are making the food, the people that are that are making the products, the people that are, you know, doing the behind the scenes work. Um, so the burden falls on them rather than the CEOs and the people who are, you know, and, and, and publicly traded, it's the same way. It doesn't fall on the stockholders. It falls, the burden of taxation falls on the workers because Reagan completely yes. dismantled and then Bill Clinton came behind him, dismantled it further. And then every president that we have had has chipped away at taxation for for it's not just taxation for companies like you said it's taxation for those who profit the most and that's what that's what has created this massive wealth gap that we see no. now because yes the government can print its own damn money and they can print its own damn money and then subsidize it into these these corporations but they're not subsidizing into the corporations they're subsidizing it into the pockets of the ceos the pockets of the billionaires they're subsidizing jeff bezos's planes um elon musk in jeff bezos flights to the moon or or whatever you know not that they went that far but the the point is is these it, they're subsidizing the most wealthy the 1% and the upper 1%. We're talking about people that make, you know, more than a million dollars, you know, up to, you know, billions per year. Yeah. I mean, Randall Ray, who has plenty of uh, education, Dr. Randall Ray, um, who we just had join us for a book club over at uh, Real Progressives. Um, you know, he, he speaks quite extensively about how corporate tax is merely a pass through to consumers. The real, the re in my opinion, if we want to really see massive change, go after the golden parachutes in the C-suite, 
go after the big uh, fire sector kind of investment capital. Don't go after the corporation because you're just going to pass that money on to you and I and, and higher prices and less uh, less jobs and less uh, availability for for having resources. Quite frankly, it's it's it seems counterintuitive because we're so conditioned to believe that taxes actually pay for spending. Once you stop thinking that way, you start thinking about taxing the bads, not the goods. And in my opinion, and it's not just my opinion, it's a shared opinion from Randall Ray, is that ultimately corporations, the benefit isn't to the corporation. The benefit is to the C-suite. Tax the hell out of the C-suite. Get rid of their golden parachutes and start watching income inequality start shrinking like this. So that that's that's my take on it. Henry says open season on corporate CEOs seems a reasonable idea to me. That's right. That's right. Okay. So yeah, I mean that's where that's where all the wealth is going. It's going to those billionaires. So I mean, start Get with monopolies. Let, let's take all the you know economics, uh, you know terminology out of it. And where's the problem? The problem is a huge percentage of our wealth are going to these uh, these billionaires, or or even in smaller companies like the multimillionaires that own it. Um, and, and instead of going to the workers, so let's start where the where the problem is. Um, with with taxation, let's circulate that back into into the economy and back into projects like like healthcare. Um, so, did you want to go? Did we want to talk a little bit about um, John Farina being on the ground right now? Um, speaking of corporate hegemony, we're seeing more and more privatization of the police. Um, we're seeing, you know, um, more militarization of the police, which is another, you know, way that money is being shifted into the hands of, uh, public institutions, um, from what was supposed to be, um, a public entity. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Tyree Nichols was violently murdered, beaten to death by police. Um, the body cam was released this weekend in Memphis, um, the Tyree Nichols family has been speaking out. Um, their attorney, Ben Crum, has been speaking out. And five police officers were arrested initially, all of them um, black police officers. Now we find out that there was an a, there have been two additional police officers that have been arrested. One of them was white. So people are asking, this guy was on camera tasing Tyree um, and, and brutalizing him. Why did he skirt? longer than why why wasn't he arrested immediately as well so um let's uh let's let's uh do you want to play a clip of what the people have yeah, said bring on, it on. calling because i i want to hear what they have to say absolutely in, uh, in memphis it's just indicative of the culture of this department and departments all across the nation in particular here when you have a so-called police department that prides itself on when it was founded in 1827. It just speaks to the fact that there's nothing more than an evolution of what it was then during the chattel slavery of African people to now. So it's only an evolution. It's no different. It's only evolution of part of the evil that is inherent and embedded in institutions all across this country. So that's the main reason. 
You know, so it just permeates it. from then to now. It seems like this whole time this white officer was being protected. His identity was being protected. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and and um, what are your thoughts on him only being relieved of duty, not being charged? Well, we want all of them to be charged. That's why we continue to come out and place pressure on city officials uh, to the point where one case in particular, Darius Stewart's case, is reopened and Connor Schilling goes to prison as well. You know, we want that much pressure to the point where, you know, again, that case is reopened and he goes to prison for murdering Darius Stewart back in 2015. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't have uh, specific details with me right now, but, you know, Darius was pursued by this pig, uh, pursued, stalked even, to the point where he caught up with him on a church property, New Direction Christian Church on Winchester, of all places, and murdered him with impunity. Uh, and again, there are details I don't have. I don't want to speak out of school. Um, all I know is that he murdered this young man, took his life with impunity under the color of law. And now he has some position in DeSoto County, Mississippi, and received a pension. That I do know. I can share that with you if that's not disgusting enough. Uh, so we want Connor Schilling. We want every pig who has taken the lives of citizens here in Memphis and Shelby County. And that also goes for the so-called Shelby County Sheriff's Department. They were, they were involved in Tyree's murder, so they were there. From what we understand, two so-called deputies have been relieved of duty. Uh, but yes, it has come out now that they did have involvement as well. So we're holding everyone from both so-called agencies accountable. We're holding everyone accountable, and we're serious. Wow, I don't have a whole lot to add to that because I, I feel like he said, you know, said all the things. The uh, the white officer not not being arrested until pressure was placed is is abhorrent. Um, Eleven hundred and eighty three people were killed by police in 2022. Now, that doesn't count the people who died after being incarcerated um, from from police violence behind bars, which is which is a commonplace too. Um, even folks awaiting trial who just can't make bail that can't get either the medical help that they need or get beat up while they're behind bars. That happens too. So the the prevalence of violence with, you know, more than three people dying per day at the hands of the police. Um, and then you have the massive privatization. And then one thing that he said really struck and that is that police were founded on um, chattel slavery and um, it, it was expanded when um, slavery was a quote unquote abolished in order to, you know, and it was it was uh, captured by the Ku Klux Klan. Literally throughout the South and throughout the country, it was captured and founded by the Ku Klux Klan in, in so many areas. It has been founded on racism. Not only that, but people were brought in who had been policing indigenous areas and moving indigenous peoples to reservations um, through through uh, Jackson's presidency and on until post World War World uh, post uh, post Civil War. So not only was it on, um, you know, stealing the land from indigenous peoples, but it was also on um, on uh, policing specifically black communities. 
And so, and then on up into, you know, Jim Crow Joe era <laughs> mm -hmm. from, I'm sorry, from, uh, from the Jim Crow era to the Jim Crow Joe era of um, the war on drugs. It's just been, it's since the founding of our country, policing has been based on, based on racism. And we're, we're seeing it in, in places like uh, Memphis. And uh, what, what are your thoughts, Steve? I think policing is set up for one primary thing, and that is private property. And private property is what slaves were back then. They were considered private property. Uh, the owner could do what they wanted pretty much. Um, and it morphed just like slavery has morphed. It morphed from chattel slavery to the kind of open air debt peonage we deal with today. And it, it private property has always been the role of the police. They're there to protect the people that have from the people that may take from them who have not. And that is always the way it's going to be. And that tends to look a lot like black and brown people tends to look a lot like people that have been marginalized and left on the left out to dry basically. And so part of the, you go back to our prior segment with the uh, Medicaid and ending these payments for uh, providing these services. And it's all part of the clamping down. It's all part of the austerity narrative. And lo and behold, it shows itself up in policing because they know that when you start cutting spending and you start reducing benefits, people that are right there at the edge are going to fall off the edge and people want to survive. We all have a desire to live. We have a survival instinct that makes us keep working. And when something happens, we'll do by any means necessary to get food or to do whatever. So they're going to ramp up and amp up the police presence around the country. You're going to see more and more jackbooted people who are part of this uh agro former military kind of mindset to police for private property. And it's just going to keep amping up more and more and more. It's only when people are brought up with the economics of freedom and, and their own ability to self-actualize that you'll see people not desperate. And then you'll see the need for cops, not that there's need for them now, but you'll see the, the air cover for the need for cops to diminish as well. So they know this and this whole thing to me, it, it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, one of the best books you'll ever read is people's history of the U S by Howard Zinn talks extremely closely to every aspect of the way private property has driven the United States. I mean, literally from jump street from the minute the elite from Europe came here. Don't believe all that huddled masses crap. I mean, they, the elite came here, set up shop, decided they didn't want to pay tithes back to England and did whatever they had to do to break free of that so they could keep the spoils of their war. And now, now all of a sudden you're seeing that play out in every step along the way. So it's private property. It's beyond just race, although race is the most evident way of experiencing that. It is 100% there for private property. Well, it's also, I agree, it's also a suppression of workers, Absolutely. If you if you look at if you look at policing, you look at the bell bond system, you look at, you know, the way that the way that police has been strong armed for corporations such as in Cop City, um, which is a corporate 
sanitized um, policing, police state uh, infrastructure that, you know, these corporations are throwing so much money behind. And, and uh, it's also being used to suppress any protest or uprisings. So all of that is coupled in together for people to be able to maintain their private property, whether it be their, you know, their wealth that is oftentimes just theoretical bullshit in the marketplace. You know, half of these billionaires, like, 80% of their wealth is all theoretical, right? But they use that wealth to borrow from each other and then grow more supposed wealth or whether it be literal physical property. Um, but it's also that workers and us as individuals, we are not seen, we are seen as a commodity. We are seen as property ourselves um, to just do the bidding of the working class or do the bidding of the, of the wealthy elite um, they have to have us. It's it's it takes me all the way back to Metropolis. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie back in no. it was one of the first ever films um, and it was black and white. And it's all about these workers underground um, who keep oh. literally the machines running for the for the um, for the city above ground and the workers rise up and come and bring the city down. But they literally had a, a completely different propaganda system. The people below the ground didn't even know the city above the ground existed. Um, and that's a that's a fabulous one to watch. But those individuals below ground were literally seen as property of the people who ran the city above. So, you know, that's that's part of the policing is that when you talk about protecting property, that's also protecting their their workforce which they see ownership of because they pay us and so they they see ownership of us and it's even worse when it comes to you know um race racist and racism policies um and and keeping their neighborhoods with a certain demographic or a certain way and um opening up doors for exploitation of black and brown people which they have been doing uh for for centuries in order to keep their machines running but I, I do know they're they're about to have um, a press conference at eight thirty. Do you have those uh, documents, Colin, from uh, from the press conference that was released by Crum? I think uh, Jordan sent them, but I wasn't sure. Okay, let's see. Uh, there's two of them, so I'll read the first one first. Um, this is from Ben Crump. That's the um, attorney for Tyree Nichols' family. Um, is confirming that tonight Vice President Kamala Harris will be attending a uh, memorial. Um, nationally renowned civil rights and personal injury attorney Ben Crump and parents of Tyree Nichols have, have issued a statement following the announcement that Vice President Kamala Harris will attend the funeral of Tyree Nichols on Wednesday. Attorney Crump issued the following statement. This morning, Ms. Roe Vaughn Wells, Ms. Rodney Wells, and I spoke on the phone with Vice, Vice President Kamala Harris over 30 minutes about the tragic loss of Tyree. Vice President Harris and Ms. Wells spoke exclusively, and during this emotional time, Vice President Harris was able to console Ms. Wells and even help her smile. Tyree's parents invited Vice President Harris to the funeral tomorrow and were pleased that she accepted their invitation. Mr. and Mrs. Wells are grateful for Vice President Harris reaching out to them during this heartbreaking time and for her sensitivity on the call. Before you pull up the second one, I just have something really quick to say. I know that a lot of people are going to judge because of the history that uh, Kamala Harris has with policing this country directly as a as a DA and, and a history of upholding the police state. 
But also keep in mind that if, if your child was murdered by someone, you would be reaching out to whoever the hell you could that you thought could get justice for the murder of your child. So some uh, some sensitivity there. We can still hold Kamala Harris's Kamala Harris's feet to the freaking fire for all the shit she's done and for what you know she she brings into this. But also, you know, I've seen a lot of comments. Just remember that if, if this happened to someone in your family or someone you loved or God forbid your child, you would, you know, I understand people doing anything they possibly can to bring justice. And that includes, you know, talking to the vice president of the country. Let's, uh, it's doubtful, but let's hope that, you know, maybe this story will help to bring bring about change. But it, what we could do is uh, is listen to what happens and, uh, and, We'll be covering that tonight if you guys uh, are curious to hear what what happens at this press conference. And I think we've got a, we've got one more statement. I think there's some more people that will be joining. OK, family of Tyree Nichols, attorney Ben Crump and Reverend Sharpton to address latest updates in Nichols case at historic location of Dr. King's last speech. Nationally renowned civil rights. And let's see, that's the same as we read before. They'll be also joined with uh, men by Memphis police officers, um, Memphis, uh, oh, apparently, and the firing of three Memphis fire department employees. That's the first mm -hmm. I've heard about that, Steve. I didn't know that that was, that was part of this. So um, would be interested to hear more about what that, because a lot of people are saying that, and I agree that the injuries that we see in the body cams, the injuries that, that Tyree Nichols suffered is, is very extensive. So we were supposed to be getting some more word about what could have happened between the arrest and between the very delayed response, um, of actually calling, uh, 911 and emergency services, um, because of his injuries, which, you know, in, in part led to, led to his death was the latent response in, in calling for help. So it would be, uh, could be, could gather some, some uh, very informative uh, details on what, what happened um, between those time periods, it appears. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, if you ever saw the movie Django Unchained, I know this is a crazy movie and I know it's intentionally out there, but you think about the, the Hicks that defended the slave owner and that whipped the the slaves and i and again it's just a movie and it, i'm but i'm sure it was worse in reality quite frankly than it was even in the movie but you look at those kind of guys and all you have to do if you have one of those cameras that morphs people through with their changes watch them from there with their one suspender over their shoulder and their toothlessness and their straw hat here and then watch as it transfers over to a blue uniform with a police badge and a hat on and it's one and the same. They're ex ex exact same scenario. And I, to me, quite frankly, we're not going to see justice for this because what is justice anyway? I saw a comment in there, great comment. And I just want to clearly make sure I, I address this from VA from NY. And it's like, what exactly does it mean to bring justice? Well, if you think about it, big deal if you get rid of six rando people. The institution as a whole is trained to behave this way. They can say that's not the case, but it's, it seems to happen so often, so often that to me, it's impossible to make it an isolated incident. It's impossible yeah. because this is the mindset. And then you have the blue line of silence. You have the code that where they don't snitch on each other and they have each other's back. You got the entire arrangement set right there. Qualified immunity. Behavior. Yeah, exactly. With qualified immunity. So, 
So to me, the idea of dealing with these onesie twosies, just like the shootings and everything else, at the end of the day, it's the institution that completely needs to be absolutely either uh, repurposed, re-envisioned, reimagined, whatever. But it can't just be firing cops because those cops, those five guys, if you talk to them at a card game the night before, I doubt you any one of them thought they were going to beat the living crap out of some dude at that moment. I guarantee you it's the nature of the job. It's the nature of the institution. It's the nature of the way that they conduct business. Then until you get rid of that entity as it stands, reform it, turning into community policing, whatever it is you're going to do, because there is rationale to have some form of law and order. Okay. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that feels like. I've never seen it in my lifetime. But only, only 15% of violent crimes are ever prosecuted or brought to the table. Only 1.3% of rapes and sexual assaults ever make it to court in this country. So when you look at it, 80% are shit like traffic stops. Blue, white collar crime is never prosecuted either. So that the, the people that are that are ravaging this country, that are stealing our homes, that are 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 abusing workers, they don't get policed. The these what what's getting policed are our drug charges. So somebody who got caught with some coke on them, or it's you know um, somebody stealing food because they have to have it for their family. These are the kinds of crimes that are getting prosecuted it's not the violent crimes so right now our police force when it comes to violent crimes is moot if you look at it the people who are getting shot are people that are getting stopped for traffic stops look at that poor oh, i don't have his name and i i apologize um not too long ago a guy was pulled over at a walmart and he was sitting there or at a, at a mcdonald's and he was eating his sandwich and they shot into his car because he was like trying to put his sandwich down insanity so many of these deaths that we see are and of course somebody's going to be scared as hell of the police when they get pulled over because there's 10 or 15 cops on you and you get pulled over, you're going to have a, um, an emotional response to that. You may even try to flee because it's terrifying. Um, and, and then people are shot and they say, oh, well, they were struggling. The 10 cops had tasers and guns and fists and boots. I mean, that's a ridiculous. Tyree Nichols did not have a gun. He did not have a weapon on him. He was not trying to shoot the police. He was doing no physical harm to them. He was simply struggling and asking for help and scared. And so they beat ask, this man ask, so much that they, they beat him to death. I, I want to ask you a question. And, 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 and this is happening while we're talking. Like my brain is like frying away. I'm literally having this moment here where, you know, when you don't see yourself as you are, when you don't look in the mirror and you don't recognize, hey, I'm getting old, I got gray hair, whatever, you know, you, you just see yourself, however, that mental image of who you think you are is until you look and you go, damn, man, I've put on weight, I've got gray hair, whatever. It's the same thing as a citizen. We think of ourselves as citizens and we think we have rights and we think the government is there to take care of us and the police are there to protect us and all this stuff. It's, it's a farce. It's like that fake thing you have in your head of who you are and then you look and you realize no I this is really who I am right 
we don't want to recognize the fact that our government doesn't serve us, that our military doesn't serve our needs and protect us, that our police force doesn't protect us, that our police force is there to protect the private property ownership class. We are merely commodities to them that serve their need. They'll lay us off to shift us to do some other work that they need done. It has nothing to do with us as individuals aspiring and, and our, our own internal desires, what we want to be when we grow up and stuff like that. They don't give a rat's ass about what your or my desire is. We are there to serve a need and serve a need only. And it's almost impossible, I think, for people to come to grips and stare in the mirror and go, oh my God, you mean this this AOC person that I celebrated and champion doesn't really care? These people don't really care about me? That They're not really there to take care of me? They're there to take care of the ownership class? That's hard to stomach. It feels like a conspiracy. It feels like something crazy. But in reality, so much of the news begins to make sense when you stop trying to snuggle these people and stop trying to pretend like they're on your side. When you stop thinking that way and you start stepping back, going, wait a minute, evidence doesn't suggest that. And you look at things soberly, very soberly with clear sight, you begin to realize ultimately that we are, uh, are the impediment to their living their best life. And we're also the keys to them living their best life and labor and other things. So just, I, I want people to take a minute and think about why the news is always the way it is. Just take a second and think about that. Think about why they never do the things that you think they should do. Why it always feels like they made a mistake, but they didn't make a mistake. They're serving someone other than you. They're serving someone other than me. And because we can't fathom that they're not on our side. Only those people are let in the door. Because I, I, you know, supported some real deal candidates. I'll just tell you, Anthony Clark is a badass community organizer. And I think he would have, he would have went in there raging. I I supported, um, hell, I supported a progressive Republican that was running as a Republican just to try it out and see what would happen. I supported 15 independent candidates. So there's this idea that when I was doing elections, I only supported like people running against Democrats, but the people that primary Democrats, even when they were doing the electoral work, um, the, the parties both both parties threw everything against those people because they refused to work with the system. Well, AOC beat Crowley, but she also had that image, right? She went to Brown. They knew that they could market her as the elite after she was elected. So they stepped back a little bit while she was running and she only needed 16,000 votes to win. They, I did not see them pressure her campaign like I did somebody like Paula Jean Swearingen. I didn't see the same thing with her. And looking back now, I go, they let her through the freaking door because they could market her as an elite. Like she deserves to freaking be there. I'm a journalist. I went to a great school, Eastern Kentucky University State School, you know, awesome professors on the ground work throughout my my education. But I can't get a job at and I wouldn't want to, but I can't get a job at CNN or MSNBC or the, you know, Associated Press. You know why? Because I don't have a degree from Northwestern, Harvard, or, you know, um, these other institutions, AMU, all these places. There is a hierarchy in this country. There is an echelon and that is maintained with lock and key and, and they will do anything to keep us regular workers that can see it out. So they'll let someone through the gate to be a journalist or 
or through the gate to be, you know, in office, who they know they can buy, who they know are already part of that class, who they know already have that mentality, but they're not going to let anyone through who's struggling and and in poverty and and having help. And if they do, if that person accidentally sneaks through somehow, they'll use our story as there's one person who was poor that became a millionaire. That means that anyone can do it and they'll do everything in their power to co-opt that person and defang them. That's how it works. Well, just remember the movie, the matrix, right? The guy said the early programmers realized that if it was too perfect, the human brain would reject it. Right? So they've got to let us feel like there's a little win here. There's a little win there. Hey, you got your guy up there and, whatever group or hey so and so one you see there's hope hey look a black man was president right each of these things are like these optics that we get fed so like, oh, yeah, yeah okay i guess i could be a millionaire someday sure let's you know fuck socialism man i gotta i'm, I'm gonna be a millionaire someday and, and and it's that little teeny bit of you know what the reason that guy didn't make it is because he's a fuck up. You're not a fuck up. You're a great guy. You're going to do wonderful, you know, and it's like, oh, I'll be the next millionaire. So yeah, fuck socialism, man. Fuck unions. Fuck this. Fuck that. I'm just going to go ahead and They're I'm going to be gonna the best me I can be. They'll yep. never let you through the door. That's the secret. They, they won't let you through. I mean, even I'm not going to name them, but even a bunch of the pundits on the left that people watch um, in these shows that are considered like rabble rilers and out of it, like I've been doing research, you know, their parents worked at the UN or their mom was a federal judge or they went to the Ivy League schools. So even on the left, even on the left, we still have these preconceived notions of echelon and who we put up. I mean, I saw in the chat, you know, um, as soon as you had one criticism of Richard Wolf, everyone's like, where did you get your degree, Steve Grumbine? Oh, yeah. Trust let, let me tell you how dumb that is. And it is pathetic. Okay. I used to, back in the early days of live streaming, I had both of my master's degrees up on the wall and I had all my certifications over there. Everything just because I was so disgusted with people that did credentialism and uh, appeals to authority. What's your credentials, Mr. Grumbine? You know, never mind the fact that I literally talk to economists pretty much every single day and around the year for, for the last decade, I have been in the, the belly of the beast with some of the best economists ever, starting with people like Mark Blythe and, and obviously uh, Jason uh, Hickel. And, and you've got people around the world, tons and but tons all, of people. Fadl Kaboob, I love Fadl him. Kaboob. Yeah, well, Fadl is a friend of the program. Fadl is more than just a, a guest. He's like kind of part of the real progressive family. Um, but, but the point I'm making here is, is that it was always a, an appeal to authority that I would take their work and I would stand on their work and I would demonstrate their work. And they would be like, what's your credentials to stand on their work? And it's like, look, man, if, if you're that much of a neo-maxi zinjweebie that my two master's degrees and three semesters of a PhD are not enough because I didn't go to Yale to get the blessings of the ownership class to teach my socialism. Imagine how crazy that is. Hey, you mean to tell me you're supposed to go to Yale to learn how to be a socialist? the most elite institution of them all that <laughs> no. is the ownership class all the way. That's all about private property. Some schlep rock had the nerve to pull that loser line out. 
I like, hey, put your Reagan card away, dude. You and your appeals to authority go somewhere else. It's ridiculous. that's what's wrong with our NGOs <laughs> and, and our nonprofits and these people that are supposed to be doing the work. They are hiring from this elite pocket, absolutely. Too. And, and so, you look at the executive directors, you look because I, I was like someone who was just you know from Kentucky who does have degrees, but I was like from Appalachia, so I would walk into these circles and everyone was just kind of like does she know what she's talking about or is she full of, you know, she's just an ignorant redneck, you know? And I, I dealt with that on the back end, working in nonprofits and even working in organizing. And it broke my heart because I was like, you guys, we're fighting for socialism. We're supposed to be fighting for workers, but we want people to stand up there and talk for us and to be the faces that are the elite class. Why does, why are people trying to find the vanguard that are the rich people that will talk for us? I'm all for class traders. I'm all for people doing that. But why do we need a face like that? Why? It's it, why don't we just get together? 79% of the country, and this kind of leads us into Marianne, 79% of the country have now fled the voter rolls of both the Democrat and Republican Party. They are done. They have no confidence in our government whatsoever. That's probably the number one. That's the one unifying thing between everyone. That's why people like Trump, because they thought some supposed billionaire would throw a wrench in the system, you know, and drain the swamp. Um, but the thing is, is that it, when we keep leaning to these leaders, these heroes, these elitists, they're out of freaking touch. Do you know how many of these pundits I hear um, talking about, they just look at like how, you know, red state and blue state, they just base everything on voting, even though only like 8% of 18% of the country even votes. <laughs> to like the sentiment of our country. And then they take the mainstream narrative, they absorb it, and then they act like they're talking for us poor people. And they're really talking at us, telling us what we need to do, how we need to organize, um, what we what we need to get together to, you know, to, to build this damn movement. But then I hear them talk about, you know, uh, ignorant things like they say that MAGA are the blue collar workers. Fuck no, they weren't. MAGA, if you look at their money that they brought in, a lot of MAGA, the actual, you know, like MAGA group or whatever, were people that made more than a $280,000 joint income per year. They own houses that are at least 2,800 square feet or more. Um, these are the, it was the elite class, the same with the blue, no matter who class, it's like the same people, the blue, no matter who class, if you start talking to them at the end of the day on a lot of things, they sound exactly like the MAGA in, in so many ways, you know, you trim off the racism, you trim off the immigration bigotry. But if you really start digging in, even that's there, because at the end of the day, what are they trying to protect? They're trying to protect their positions, their property, and their privilege. They feel like they've earned it. You know, their parents got wealthy off of hard work. And so they, there's a guy who did an NPR story that I was just traveling down the road listening to. And for 20 years, he tracked poor families, Steve, or he, he tracked middle-class families from suburbia, right? And um, he wanted to see what happened between then and when their kids grew up. And it was very interesting. Every single one of those families helped their kids along the way or had wealth that helped get them to where they're at. But almost every single person he talked to just said, I worked hard for it. I didn't have any help. One example that stuck out to me is that a family had a, um, a family, multimillion dollar family living in the suburbs of Chicago um, they were giving a deposit for their kids.
to get a house, right? And they, they were going to give them the full deposit. And um, they said, okay, in order for us to give your deposit, you got to work for it a little bit. So have a yard sale. So they had a yard sale and they raised like $500, right? And then the parents came in and gave them 60000 down to buy their house. Yet he came back years later, like 10 years after this. And he asked those people, how did you get your home? How did you buy it? We worked hard for it. We had a yard sale. <laughs> I, I Let me tell you, let me take a step. I have a slightly more nuanced perspective of MAGA. And it, it's a challenge because as a socialist and you look at what the working class is and the working class is anyone that works and gets a paycheck, right? Anybody that's doing work and earns a paycheck, wage slaves, right? And there are many, many, many wage slaves in the MAGA community. And unfortunately, what's happened is because of the red blue, because of the Democrat Republican thing, we end up forgetting that how feckless Democrats have been. So when you create despondency, you create a lack of hope. People look for hope wherever they can find it. They're not always sophisticated. They're not always uh, in the know. They haven't read all the great books. They haven't read a lot of socialist theory. They didn't read any Lenin. That's for sure, right? But they and they don't have and, to to know what's going on. Let's be honest. But they are literally many of these people. You've got a very small group of hardcore, no matter which way you go. A lot of quote-unquote MAGA people are just people that flat out didn't want Hillary, did not want Hillary, hated Hillary, couldn't stand sure. Hillary. And you know what? If that was the only credential, hey, make me MAGA, right? The problem was is that I have a very different set of evaluation criteria, things that I'm actually fighting for. So when I look at this, I'm really careful to not, totally shit on the MAGA folk just because I'm expecting full well that if we can bring common sense, not even to the parties, but into the mainstream narrative, forget the parties, just in society, talking to one another, that we, the people outside of party control, outside of the narratives that are told by Democrats and Republicans, okay, to keep us in this wild swirling whirling dervishes in a teapot right you know tempest in a teapot or whatever we're doing nothing and and they know this and by allowing the kind of narratives to keep us divided we end up pushing people that are sympathetic to our cause but just unsympathetic to the democratic party we end up pushing them away and they end up getting indoctrinated by other folks they get pulled into things that i don't think they're really I don't think is really who they are. I think we have got a neoliberal society that has created precarity and created desperation in millions upon millions of regular working people. And they're looking for solutions wherever it can be found. Democrats have not produced solutions. They have not offered up solutions. The people that vote blue don't say anything about solutions. They just say vote blue. They don't have any kind of analysis. They have no class on uh, analysis whatsoever. So in the end, the issue comes down to we're workers. I'm not MAGA. I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. I am labor. I am one of the labor. And if we can keep that mindset there and yeah, reduce it to class for a minute, I think you're going to see that we have a chance at a real movement. The problem is, is that Democrats have claimed this territory and they use identity politics to crush people. And so they create MAGAs, not because people are MAGA, but because they're sick to death of that. And the only alternative is A or B, duopoly, A, B, ping pong ball back and forth. What I, I don't believe I'll have is Republicans, Republicans create as much culture war as Democrats. It's just a different kind of culture war. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I, but it's 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 a means of ensuring that the working class never unites to fight for its rights as the working class. We never have that class war. We never have that class struggle because instead we've replaced class with this duopoly game, this game of ping pong. Even though we're checked out of that game of ping pong, we're still being forced into it, if you will, by the news, by the people's conversations, <clears throat> by their worldview, by everything that happens at work in our days, you, our lives. It's all controlled by this duopoly narrative. And as a result of that, when you see people check out and you see them go the wrong way, it's kind of, I find it very hard to get angry at them. I'm sad, but I'm thinking to myself, it's because I want to have a real left in this country. I want to have a real working class movement in this country. And, and I don't think we ever will as long as this narrative stays. But we're going to talk about Marianne Williamson, are we not? Yes, but I will say one thing to that. When it when it comes to the um, the culture wars and stuff, I think that there is a problem on the left with ignoring um, racism, misogyny, Absolutely. bigotry, and how those are baked into the system. You know how it is Absolutely. different for for a woman getting work than a man, and how they're treated. Absolutely. And how Issues like domestic violence and sexual assault are baked into this pie of economics and and economics alone aren't going to fix it. So we also have to be able to couple in for solidarity with workers, just like the Black Panther Party did, just like um, there's a misconception about the Young Patriots. The Young Patriots were already anti-racist. They just flew the Confederate flag, not knowing what they meant. They were already socialist. So, so many of us are actually already on the same freaking page about all of this, yet we're catering to the fringes. And so we have to stop catering to those fringes that the, the duopoly creates for us and really come in in solidarity on all the different kinds of struggles that we face that are baked in culturally and economically for us to build that solidarity to move forward. Humanity, Absolutely. it has to be based on on humans and, and treating each other and with with that collectivism instead of that rampant individuality, which that kind of brings us to some of the things that Marianne Williamson talked about. And I know I don't know how long you could stay, but let's let's go ahead and, and go through this, uh, go through this. Um, Colin, can you bring up her, her interview, um, one of the whichever clip you want to go through first and, and we'll take a look. Look at the whole picture here. Um, and, and I also want to point out, if you look at the Democratic Party, look at what happened even in these last midterms. Greg Cesar from Texas, Summer Lee from Pennsylvania, uh, Celia Ramirez from Illinois. There are some new progressives in the House. So it's not like the fight's not going on there. At the same time, I certainly think third party voices are significant. I don't uh, minimize in any way the significance of the unholy alliance between the Democrats and the Republicans uh, by which third parties have been peripheralized. You know, abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage came from the women's party. Social security came from the socialist party. Uh, political parties are not even mentioned in the constitution. Um, uh, John Adams said they're the greatest threat to democracy. All that is true. But I also think it's naive to think if only we go third party. Um, I know for myself, if I run uh, Jordan, I know that the effort on the part of the Democrats will be to invisibilize my candidacy. They will be they will have an easier time invisible invisibilizing my candidacy if I run as a third party. I want to be in there. If I run, I want to get to debate Joe Biden. I want to be able to like actually uh, be um, not easily ignored. And uh, if I run as third party, it would be easier to ignore me, which is not to discourage 
uh, people, particularly, you know, individual races are different. There's some districts where you, you can, you know, you could get there as a third party person and it would help. But um, and if, look, if, if somebody feels in their conscience and in their gut, the way I can best contribute to the fundamental change in this country is to go third party, then they should do that. Uh, but I don't think there should be this projection of guilt or this suspicion of people who go the other way. This is a whole systems breakdown we've got here. And we should use every, every, um, uh, every option uh, at, our, at our command to make a change. To me, that includes uh, working within the Democratic. Steve, so I'm going to jump in. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a short timer, folks, so forgive me for that. Um, but let, let me just say this. Uh, first of all, I, Democrat, independent, it doesn't matter. It's the system that she's running within, okay? It's a national position. And the thing that I think people that pay attention get is that the party has a lot of things going on inside of it. It's a corporation. The Democratic Party is a corporation. The Republican Party is a corporation. We already know the Democratic Party went tooth and nail down there in Florida uh, fighting against having to have even a, a legit primary. They, they have no, there's no rules under the sun that their corporation has to allow us to have any say so in who gets onto the debate stage, who gets into office. They can select who they want by law. They can do whatever they want. There is no requirement whatsoever. That said, Marianne Williamson has a lot of problematic stances, okay? And her 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 ignoring the machinations of the party structure and what the party itself does as a machine, as a as a corporate entity, okay, is is to me deceptive. I it's not a matter of whether she runs independent or not. It's a matter of the fact that she sees the establishment as an acceptable thing. She sees the system as it stands as an acceptable thing that she wants to be a part of. Not She's not looking to change it and turn it on its head. And just listening to her made me feel all kinds of status quo, not status quo, status quo. And <laughs> more importantly, I, I don't see, um, I have no faith that these things are real to begin with. If she's running as a Democrat in the party, my belief is number one, the party realizes they've completely lost the left with the way they dog Bernie. We need somebody up there to energize the left, to make them pay attention to our party. So we'll put another person up there to kind of get the left to look at us one more time during this high visibility season where there's an election. And then the Biden will crush the insurgent and they will all of a sudden say, see, we've got the strongest right person in the logo. And, and she'll say, I endorse Joe Biden because DeSantis is so terrible. Exactly. I, I have absolutely. Z I mean, look, she might be a great person. She might be an excellent Parcheesi player. She might even be good at tennis. I don't know. I'm not voting for her for president. And and, and uh, she's probably really good singer. I don't know. She maybe even. Has some cool tattoos that we don't Are you know. I don't know. Karaoke? <laughs> yeah, I mean, she might she might be the best at singing comfortably numb I've ever seen. I don't know, but ultimately, <laughs> she ain't for me. She ain't gonna be. I'm not voting for. Her. And uh, you know, I, I to the people out there that kind of sometimes take shots at the coup and take shots at some of the establishment stuff. Look, I get it, man. But you got to understand that it we are dealing with a group of people that is so small. 
we can talk about 70% are independent, but I'm telling you out of that 70% of independence, if I walked to them and told them that the United States government creates its own money, I bet you out of those 70% of people, less than 1% understand what I'm saying. That's the truth. So when we talk about people being willing to vote for an independent, sure, they're disgruntled. They're absolutely disgruntled with the system. That does not make them magically knowledgeable. And I see a lot of leftist YouTubers out there that have the right idea of mocking the system and mocking the establishment, but couldn't econ their way out of a paper bag. And so when I think about the mockery and all the shit talking and stuff like that, Look, man, we got to work together in the long run, man. I'm not here for YouTube likes and clicks. I'm here because I have a message to tell and I want people to learn economics. I look at the system as it stands and all you're going to get is a political facade meant to keep you asleep and happy and willing to keep believing. It's like the tooth fairy. It's like Santa and voila, you've got U.S. political system that comes up every couple of years for you to get excited about, for them to rake money in and for you to feel like you've done your civic duty. And that's it. That's, that's my take on Marianne. She ain't my girl. I, no offense. It's not a hate. I don't hate you. You're probably a wonderful tap dancer, but I'm not voting for you. <laughs> well, in, in here, in this interview, she still defends Biden. She defends Biden on his cuts to Medicaid so that that didn't happen. She defends Biden and she defends, well, we're about to hear it, the, the spending on the war, the proxy war in Ukraine, the blank check. She didn't call it a blank check, kind of wishy-washy on that. I've heard other stances, you know, on a two-state solution that isn't, that's a non-solution for Palestinians. Um, so I don't see a striking juxtaposition yet. Um, and if you're unwilling to call out Joe Biden on the freaking crime bill, the crime bill of all things, then, you know, where do we stand? Because her answer to that, you know, in another interview with RBN, her answer to that was essentially that, you know, people are going to make mistakes. Maybe he's learned his lesson. But if you're not going to, if you can't call out the incumbent, I, I worked 100 campaigns. And I'm going to tell you, these insurgents, the progressives that ran did not work within the Democratic Party when I worked with them. The party worked against them. But some of them were afraid to come out and go hard against the person that they were challenging. And if you're not creating that juxtaposition and she's not threatening to run third party, she's not threatening to run independent. She's playing the political party game while saying that this party's broken. And so that's going to confuse people. That's going to confuse the hell out of people. And where she's going in light already, I don't trust her not to be co-opted because I already saw right. people like Cori Bush get co-opted and absorbed, who I thought was a freaking badass when she was running. I mean, she was on the ground fighting, um, you know, getting pepper sprayed by police, you know, um, in, uh, you know, the... Um, um, I'm drawing a blank. I have, I have COVID brain. Uh, where's Corey from in, uh, St. Louis. I'm sorry. St. Yes. St. Louis. So, um, it, there's all of this going on where people are already being co-opted. We saw that the squad defanged and she had the nerve to say, we've got some fighters in right now. Who? Uh, who the it, hell uh, is fighting for? Who? Rokana? 
you know, he's hilarious. O'Connor in there fighting for us. He's not. So it's disappointing. And I don't see her being an answer to Joe Biden by playing the same game. Trump came in and Trump was able to sweep, even though the party was against him. The Republicans were against him in the beginning. If people don't remember, he threatened to create his own party. He threatened to run independent. He came in hard against the Republican Party. Um, and that's what energized people because when 79%, as I had mentioned, that was a, somebody asked me about that. Um, there's been several polls actually that have seen this, but I, I believe there's some recent Gallup polls on this as well. Um, but when you've got 60 to 79% of the country that identify as independent and the number one thing that's, that's across the board, we all agree on is that everyone in Congress and government is corrupt. If you're coming in kissing the ring of one of the establishment parties, you're not going to get very far as an insurgent uh, you know, candidate. You're not going to bring out those new voters who are going to vote for you. And at the end of the day, it comes down to policy for me. And I can't trust someone on policy that's going to take those stances. And do you want to hear this next video uh, real quick, Steve, and we can react to that. And I don't know how long real we there's yeah. just one thing I want to touch on something. There's there's a hilarious comment in here, and I've been watching it and tracking on it. It's like saying basically, first off, if you don't support Marianne Williamson, you support Joe Biden by default, and the old man all caps lock. And then you've got the next one. This is the one that really drove me absolutely nuts. Nuts. So we've got somebody who comes out and says that. He keeps talking about her singing and dancing, comes off sexist, like I was being sexist about Marianne Williamson. If you listen to me, I always talk about Joe Biden. I'm like, hey, guy might be a great tennis player, might be a smooth tap dancer, might even be good at shuffleboard, but I'm not voting for him. Like, I, this is a Steve thing. It's got nothing. And then somebody else, he's not a sexist, but he's condescending. Whatever. It's like that stuff is just such a trip. I just read that stuff and I say, hey. Look, I, I can't make a funny without finding somebody's sweet spot. I can't make a harsh statement without somebody getting offended. After a while, you just sort of say, come on, give with the program, man. It's just ridiculous. Anyway. This idea that we can't, we, can't go, we can't go harder or we can't laugh or we can't, you know, about a public figure is I just don't understand that at all. Yeah, I kind of It's ridiculous. Well, listen, I, I do have to jump, but this was wonderful. Okay. I'm really glad. And folks, me and Zaina have never done this before one-on-one -on -one like this. So, you know, any bumps in the road? This was fun. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much for making it fun. Thanks for coming on, Steve. And always, thanks for sharing your input. <laughs> you got it. Take it easy, everybody. I'll see you all soon. All right, Colin, you want to pull up the uh, the next clip and we can respond to that one as well? Um, I want to turn to Russia, Ukraine. Uh, you know, I, I understand we're, we're all humans. Uh, we care about uh, the people of Ukraine. You know, Ukraine did not invade itself. Uh, we should care about, you know, Somalia and Pakistan and Afghanistan and uh, not just, you know, white countries uh, that are invaded. But uh, what do you say to people, my, myself included? I mean, it just seems like there's like a blank check here for Ukraine, but not serious efforts by Biden to actually try to ex uh, accelerate diplomacy, try to make a deal. Uh, it seems like this, the United States is backing uh, endless war. That doesn't mean Putin isn't to blame, but what do you, you know, if you're president today, how do you end this war? Because we're sending more money to Ukraine than Flint and many other places have gotten in, in a decade. 
first of all, the United States doesn't have the power, you know, neither, neither Ukraine nor Russia are interested right now in sitting down at the table. So it's not like the United States could just say, make that happen. Um, the money, I, I don't think it's, it's accurate to say we're giving a blank check. We are giving uh, financial support and military support. There is no doubt about that, which I support. I support the same way uh, that other leftists in Europe support. The Green Party of Germany supports the giving of those tanks. You know, the Europeans take a very different view of this. The left in Europe takes a very different view of this. Uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, the Scandinavian countries, and some leftists that I know in Europe think, I find it very odd that the left here seems to be what they perceive to be soft on Putin. So if we want to take, to, it should not be in addition to that $858 billion, which is already obscene, uh, take from the 55 billion that we're giving to the nuclear industry. Uh, there are ways that that could be taken from money that we already have. So it should not be additional expense. Um, but I do not uh, agree that uh, uh, withdrawing support from Ukraine uh, is responsible to democracy, it is responsible to the West. Um, I understand, look, we, I think anybody who'd be watching your program understands uh, that the United States, in terms of, of NATO, in terms of the Aegis missiles that were in Poland and Romania. So, you know, it came out, what, just, just two weeks ago that they're going to send uh, millions in tanks now to Ukraine. Um, we are essentially, in my view, fighting a proxy war uh, and, and by, by giving this money and this support, which, which one of the major issues is, is that it's not just humanitarian aid. It is, uh, it's, it's weapons that we're not tracking. It's millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars being funneled into the military industrial complex for another, for another war. Um, it is, uh, and so this idea that we can't pressure to put things on the table when the United States is providing the most assistance, is providing the most that, that we can't do something diplomatically to bring people to the table, I believe is problematic. Um, and to say that it's not a blank check when, no, there are no oversights of this these finances and hell we've had the pentagon lose what 350 billion dollars over the last 30 years just lose it don't know what happened to it yet we're giving all this money now with no oversight i understand where jordan came from yes there were there are so many things that go all the way back to 2014 and and this is a very nuanced subject with um what has happened with the buildup with, with the seating of Zelensky and, and the tensions between Russia and what's gone on in the Donbass. It is a it's a nuanced topic. That is true. But to say that peace talks shouldn't happen and to say that, you know, there's a blank check on war is something that I personally disagree with. And I think that a lot of folks do. But for me, what kind of sticks out um, in that answer is the political answer. It's the political answer and it's obviously the, the party line and it's not putting pressure on where this money is being spent from a candidate that's supposed to be ardently anti-war. So um, for me, that's already problematic because so many Americans are against this funding. So part of representing is representing the country. And one of the things that, that many in the country agree with fundamentally is that even if, even if aid is to be given, it should be tracked. 
And we should know and we should have a breakdown of where those funds and where those weapons are going, because God knows we have sent weapons overseas that have circulated back and caused harm on the ground um, and, and military expansion, as well as you as the growth of U.S. imperialism. So, you know, uh, not having a clear answer on that, I think, was problematic um, and not pushing back on Biden. Biden, you know, to be able to draw some distinction between the Democrat and Republican Party when they agree 90 percent of the time at the end of the day. Granted, I'm not diminishing the fact that there is there is rise in in uh, racial fascism. There's rise in in neo-Nazism within the um, Republican Party, but it's been there in the Democratic Party, too. It's just more covert. So um, ignoring this fact and placating to one party, I can see primarying um, Joe Biden for uh, to maybe get on the debate stage, which was even difficult for Bernie. None of my candidates out of the hundred, only only two of them ever made it to the debate stage. Apology Jean Swearingen, she never debated Shelley Moore Capito in her race, even though she was the only one challenging a Republican. I had, uh, you know, uh, Eva Petsova never got to challenge. Um, she never got to debate Tom O'Halloran, even though she ended up getting almost 38, 39 percent of the vote. Um, so making it to the de debate stage is already difficult as a primary challenger. I think that it's it's great if somebody takes up the mantle and tries to primary. But if they're not holding this, that they would be willing to run independent, that they are against what the Democratic Party is doing, if they're not going to stand up and, and hold the squad accountable and the progressive caucus accountable for not doing shit for us, I don't think that they're going to reach the public where the public is with our you know, pain points that we're experiencing right now. And ultimately it's about, do they mean what they say? Are they going to do what they're going to do when they get in office? Or are they just going to be absorbed by the very same system that's been against us all along? Because what's the difference in having someone up there that's name only different, but is going to toe the party line once they get there. And those are my thoughts on Marianne. And I know that, you know, there's, there's diverse um, opinions on this, but I think, one of the things I will say is our focus right now on already looking at the presidential election in 2024, when there's local ballot measures that are going to be coming across in 2020, as far as electoralism goes, when there's on the ground action and organizing in unions, strikes, um, the worker uprising, look at what's happening in France right now with, with millions of people out on the street, um, basically pushing a general strike. Um, <coughs> There's going to be folks that can run locally and can run for state houses as independent. The barriers to people running independent is less difficult that way. Um, it is hard for third parties to make it on the ballot. That is so true. Each state and each secretary of state has different rules for ballot access for state parties. And you have to have state party parties before you can register for a federal party. And that can take years. So that's one of the things that's difficult is that it, it really is hard in a lot of states to meet that benchmark um, to run because it's crazy things like you have to run for a governorship in Texas and get um get 2% of the vote. So you have to wait for the governorship cycles. So you can't even start a party when there's not a governorship election. People don't realize that. There are several states that are like that. 
Um, so with that being said, people think you can turn around, snap fingers, and then there's a third party the next day. Nope. They got all these barriers in place. There's less for running independent, but in some states such as Tennessee, you have to get three times the signatures um, for ballot access than somebody running on a party line. Why? That's insane. So we, we should also be focusing on changing these election laws if we want more independents and more third parties running, which I absolutely support. Uh, so there's just a lot of a lot of knowledge gaps in this. Um, I commend, like I said before, the Libertarian Party and the Green Party that they were able to um, build parties because it's very, very difficult. But also we need the infrastructure for when people are running to be able to um, to be able to fundraise, to be able to knock doors, to be able to do all the work that you have to do to reach voters. They put up barriers there, too. So understanding those barriers helps us to understand how to combat them. And one great way is to run state and local races, um, because there's oftentimes less barriers there. And a lot of those races for state house or local, you can get in the door as an independent. And if you if 10 people, 20 people ran as independents in Kentucky, let's say, then you're going to be drawing um, some opposition in the state house. And right now, I, I ask people to look at their state house legislation and their local legislation being passed because uh, there's anti-abortion laws being passed. There's right to work laws, which is essentially anti-union and union busting laws. There's, um, you know, taxation laws. There's laws that are taking and, and privatizing um, police forces, privatizing, you know, our 911 services, privatizing our public infrastructures. So it's really important that we don't lose sight of the shiny thing in 2024 and who's running for president um, when we're a ways off and things are happening right now at the state and local levels. But I think that's that's it for today. Um, going to wrap it up and call it an evening, but really appreciate you guys coming in, tuning in. Um, Popping in the chat. And if you can, please give to um, a sign up for membership on uh, Status Coup. Uh, what is that again? <laughs> is it? Yes. StatusCoup.com slash join. That should be really easy for me to remember. Shame on me. Um, StatusCoup.com slash join. Um, people that sign up to be a member uh, helps us to be able to set our monthly budget. So that's a big help uh, as we do more and more on the groundwork. And we just try to bring more journalism because there's not much out there let's face it and also um yeah go to slash donate if if you want to give a dollar two dollars if you can but also sharing you know uh, retweeting um hopping into the conversation on here hopping in later and joining in on the conversation on youtube once something's posted um and also just just we're going to be doing a lot of coverage of action organizing protest um Sharing that can also help get the word out to people that are often overlooked who might need help um, to have their, their voices and their movements and their emissions heard. So we appreciate all of that. And thank you guys so much for joining. Have a good night.